The past few months we've been walking through the gospel of Matthew, at least the last part of that gospel, looked in great detail at the last week in the life of Jesus. So we saw how his disciples went with him to the upper room to celebrate what we now would call the Lord's Supper. Then he was betrayed by Judas, handed over to be crucified, and then rose from the dead. And today we come to the very last section of the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus ascends into heaven, and before he does, he gives his disciples instructions about what to do. And so today, uh, I think about uh, at this point, we stand really in the same place as the disciples did in this moment. We stand on the other side of the cross, no longer looking forward like Abraham, just knowing that God was going to provide. We now look back and see exactly how God provided. Unlike the Saturday after the crucifixion, when the disciples were no doubt discouraged and confused, we now, just like they will in this passage, we stand on this side of the resurrection knowing that Jesus did not go into the tomb for eternity, but he went into the tomb just to come back out resurrected. And so the title of today's message is, What Next? What Next? Because I think on that day before Jesus ascended, that's what he was telling his disciples. He was telling them what they were to do next. And having understood the message, when we, you and I come to believe it, but we really stand in the same place as the disciples. Having understood that Jesus died for our sins, arose from the dead, then what are we to do? What are we to do next? And Jesus didn't leave us to, to figure it out. He gave us more than just instructions. He actually gave us a command. Today, that's what we're looking at in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. So I want to ask you just out of honor and reverence for God's word, would you join me in standing as we read this together? Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16. The Bible says, now the 11 disciples, notice there are 11 now, Judas betrayed Jesus and then went out and hung himself. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Father, help us to understand the words of your Son. And Lord, help us to live them. Open our eyes to realize what was happening on this day. And may we join the disciples in this mission of bringing others along to follow Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
I suspect that perhaps you came here this morning because you believe that Jesus is worthy of worship. That, that may not be why you came. Maybe you're still seeking, trying to figure this out. But most of us gathered here today to worship. And Jesus is worthy of worship, and yet still some doubt. That was the case then, and it is still the case now. And so the Bible says here in this passage we just read that the 11 disciples, so, so all the remaining disciples after Judas's betrayal are present with Jesus in this moment. And it says that when they saw him, they, they worshiped him. They worshiped him. If you read through the gospels, you really go on a journey of discovery with the disciples. You and I, uh, oftentimes we've had decades to reflect on this. Some of us were raised in church and, and from an early age taught in Sunday school about Jesus. And we've heard the teachings over and over again. But remember that the disciples experienced these things in real time. They didn't have uh, decades to reflect. They didn't have countless uh, sermons and Sunday school lessons explaining the significance of these things. They're just experiencing the events in real time as Jesus is healing the sick and he's multiplying the fish and he's walking on water. And they're seeing all these things. And they're hearing Jesus teach like no one has ever taught before. The Bible says the crowds were amazed because he taught as one who had authority. And so they're, they're watching and they're trying to, to figure out who Jesus is. And even toward the end, remember, Jesus began to tell them plainly that he must go to Jerusalem and be handed over by the chief priest and be crucified. And, and Peter, who no doubt meant well, and I, we won't be too hard on Peter because had you and I been in the moment and not had the benefit of a lifetime of reflection, we may have responded the same way. But Peter pulls Jesus aside and he says, he says this can never happen. you got to stop talking like this. He doesn't fully understand yet who Jesus is and all that's about to take place. But on this moment, after they've now seen Jesus crucified, to see him three days later come out of the grave, it says that, when they saw him, they, they worshiped him. The Bible would tell us in the Gospel of John about one of the disciples named Thomas. Thomas has been nicknamed uh, Doubting Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. I'm not really sure that that's fair to Thomas. I don't know that Thomas was as much a doubter as he was what we would call today a critical thinker. He wasn't going to just accept what he was told. He wanted to see the evidence. And so the Bible tells us about this in John chapter 20, verse 24. It says, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So remember, they were in the upper room. Jesus appeared to them, but Thomas wasn't there. So he didn't see with his own eyes. So verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. 
And so Thomas is not willing to accept the testimony of his fellow disciples. And so verse 26, it says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Listen to how Thomas responds. Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. When Thomas saw the risen Lord, he believed. And he not only believed that it was Jesus, but he worshiped him as God. He says, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? And listen to this, because this part of the verse is about me and you. Listen to this. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. On that day, the Bible says the 11 were gathered and they worshiped Jesus, but some doubted. I don't know who the some were. I don't think it was Thomas. Because Thomas, when he saw the risen Lord, immediately acknowledged him as God. It's difficult for us to understand, after having seen the Lord risen from the dead, what it would, was that we'd be doubting. But then again, if we read the Bible, I think we see that most people struggle with doubt. I think most Christians today, uh, if not everybody, at least most, have times in our life when they struggle with some doubts. So, so how, do we, how do we move past doubt? I think if we look in the Bible and look at Thomas encountering the risen Lord, it's just one more example that, well, we look to the evidence. You see, Thomas saw the Lord and he believed and he worshiped. Another famous instance in the Bible of someone doubting would be John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist? Jesus said there was none born greater among women than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was uh, such a mighty preacher that he didn't need a place to preach. John the Baptist went out in the desert and great crowds came to him. Everyone knew that John the Baptist was a prophet. A prophet which they hadn't seen a prophet in Israel in 400 years when John the Baptist came along. And John the Baptist, as he was preaching, Jesus came up and John the Baptist looked at Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He clearly proclaimed Jesus to be the coming Messiah. But later when John was arrested and placed in prison, he began to doubt. And he sent his disciples to Jesus. And he said, Go and ask Jesus. Is he the one, or should we look for another? And Jesus, as he heard from John's disciples, 
He began to work many miracles. And then in Luke 7, 22, listen to what it says. He answered them, that is, Jesus told the disciples of John. He said, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Evidence, right? The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news preached to them. By the way, that list corresponds to Old Testament prophecy pointing toward the Messiah when he would come. Jesus, when John had doubts, he pointed him to the evidence. He said, well, what kind of evidence do we have today? I want you to think about this for a moment. If you're here today and you've been saved, and I expect looking at the crowd, that's most of us here today. If you've been saved why would you doubt that the Lord is able and willing to save someone else? It always amazed me throughout my ministry that we would, we would conduct different uh, events and activities in the church and, and people would express all kinds of doubt. I would say, we're going to have a great vacation Bible school this year. This is well worth your time. We need everybody to volunteer. Kids are going to come. They're going to hear the gospel. Uh, who knows who may be saved? And they'd say, well, I don't, I don't know, preacher. I just don't know if that works. And so I, one Sunday morning, I, I just asked the crowd, I said, I said, if you were saved during vacation Bible school, would you just stand up? People all over the room stood up. There they were, decades later, after making a decision in Bible school. Every time we, we talk about having a revival, people say, I just don't, I just don't think that's going to work. I don't think that works. Do you know why I'm here today? I went to a revival, I heard the gospel, and I was saved. Decades later, I'm still following the Lord. If you've been saved, why would you doubt that God could save someone else? Oftentimes, we'll visit someone, we'll contact someone, and uh, a person will say, oh, that's, that's a waste of time. There's, there's no way that person's ever going to be saved. Have you ever seen a, an unlikely person be saved? I've seen a lot of unlikely people be saved. And when I was in when I was in North Carolina, there was a man who was uh, in his uh, he was late seventies, early eighties. I don't remember the exact age. And his brother asked me if I'd go see him. Now I'll admit the likelihood of being saved at that age after resisting the gospel your entire life is pretty slim. But I went, and we had a great conversation. And I went back for a couple of different weeks, and we would sit in the morning. We had coffee. We talked about the gospel, and the last visit that I was there just very clearly explained the gospel. And I said, do you understand this? He said, I do. I said, do you believe this? He said, I do. I said, would you like to just pray right here, right now, and receive the Lord as your Savior? He said, I would. There in his kitchen, he prayed to receive Christ. He came to church that Sunday, came that Sunday night, came that Wednesday night, came the next Sunday night came the next Wednesday, and the day after, he dropped dead with a heart attack. Two weeks. He said, Pastor, that's pretty unlikely that he was saved. I, I've been seeing God save unlikely people my whole life. We, we, we went to Atlanta, had this family that had gotten mad at the church, and they had left, and they were just real inactive, and they weren't doing anything anywhere. And we went to visit them, we went to visit them, we went to visit them. And uh, I, I remember... I, I was in the office one day and somebody said something about that family and I said, I said, I said, they're, I said, they're not coming. Uh, we've done everything we can do. 
We've been in their house multiple times. We've talked to them. We've talked. There, there's nothing else. We can, they're just not coming. They've made up their mind. And uh, you know what happened? They ended up coming. And uh, by the time I left there, he was pursuing ministry. Now he's got his PhD for liberty and serving on staff at a church. I've seen God do some unlikely things. And so when we think about doubts, when you look at the evidence. Speaking of unlikely things, and I don't, I don't want to embarrass you, but I just heard you laugh a moment ago. You know, Angie, who served on staff here for so long, I don't know if you know this or not, but Angie was an atheist when she was a young person. And look, look what she did. Gave her life to the Lord, served in the Lord's church for years. Whenever you doubt, look at the evidence. I want you to notice a second thing that's very important in this passage. Jesus has unrivaled and unlimited authority. This is crucial for us to understand. I really think that, that so many things that we look in the church and we say, well, we have this problem, we have that problem. And the truth is they're not really problems. They're symptoms of a deeper problem. And one of the deep problems that's causing a lot of symptoms in churches all over America today is that, that we don't understand or we don't believe in God's authority over us. And so listen to what Jesus said to his disciples. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, the reason Jesus says this is because he's about to give them a command, about to give us a command through scripture as well. And he's given the reason why he's able to give this command. It's because he has authority. And not just authority, but he has, he has all authority. Many of us in this room, we, we find our places in life where we have limited amounts of authority. And, you know, when you go into a classroom, the teacher has a certain amount of authority over that classroom. And a police officer pulls you over, he has a certain amount of authority, but it's not unlimited authority. The Bible tells us that Jesus has all authority given to him by the Father. So he has the ability to give us commands. Here's the definition of authority uh, one person wrote. The power or right to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience well jesus doesn't enforce obedience at this stage and that's his choice but he has the ability to and he has the right to but he does give us commands think of just a few of the titles jesus has given in scripture king lord god each of these conveys his authority over us so when we think about our relationship to the Lord, we are the creation. He is the creator. And so when we read the Bible, it's, it's not a place for negotiation. When the Lord gives us commands, we either submit in obedience or we rebel against his authority. Just one or the other. The Lord has the authority to give us commands. So what's this command that he's about to give them? 
but he commanded them to make disciples. It says in verse 19, go, therefore. That word, therefore, points back to the authority of Jesus. He has just said that he has all authority. And then he says, go, therefore. Therefore points back to the, the basis of that command. He has all authority. So he can command us what to do. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The command is to make disciples. Uh, we're, we're all influenced by culture and society. And that, that's just true for every person everywhere in the world at any time. We're, we're all just influenced by our culture. And part of the process of being transformed into the image of Christ is allowing Christ to show us things that we have accepted, believed, or become that are inconsistent with who he is. It, it may be perfectly consistent with everybody around us, that's our culture, but be inconsistent with, with who he is. And so when you think about our culture today, we live in a time where it's, it's taboo to confront people with a message that states they are sinners. And yet that's exactly what the Bible says, that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We live in a time where it's politically incorrect to even imply, let alone state, that there's one way to God and that's through Jesus. And so our culture would really like for the church to become inward and private. We're, we're, not, uh, we're not in a place like some countries around the world where it's not okay to worship, but we're in a culture where it's becoming more and more the idea is Christians just need to do their own thing and let everybody else do their own thing. And most of us are very willing to embrace this because have you noticed that people who are willing to talk about anything and everything all of a sudden become silent when it comes to talking about Jesus? People who are very emphatic about their sports team, their political party, their opinions about all kinds of things, and yet those same people, when asked to talk about Jesus, become nervous, awkward. And do you know why? I think one of the reasons is the spiritual warfare. Not only does our culture not want us to talk about Jesus being the only way to God, Satan doesn't want us to talk about it either. And yet the Lord has commanded us to make disciples. 
Our faith in him may be personal, but it's not private. We are to be his witnesses in the world. And I want you to notice the extent of this call and command. To make disciples of all nations. The Lord's concern is for for all people because they are all his creation. That's why we do missions all over the world. That's why this morning when we took up the offering, that offering and every other offering, there's a portion of that that goes to international missions and North American missions. That's why in your bulletin today, there's that envelope that says Mission Indy because we're trying to help plant churches in Indianapolis where it's a heavily unchurched city. Because the extent of the Lord's command, it may begin at home, but it extends to the world. And Jesus said this, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is this act of obedience that follows the example of Christ and proclaims what he's done in our lives. But the Great Commission is not evangelism. Evangelism is just one step of fulfilling the Great Commission. For Jesus goes on to say, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The call that the Lord placed upon us is to help others to know him and to follow him. And this is why we have Sunday school. And it's why we have service. And it's why right now we're broadcasting this message on radio and on the internet. It's why we invite people to events. It's why we have a crusade. It's why we're going to have vacation Bible school this summer. To create opportunities for people to come and people to hear and people to grow. Because this command that God has placed on our lives through Jesus is to make disciples. And it's a really daunting task. But listen to this encouraging news. The Lord has not left us to do this on our own. He says in the last part of verse 20, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit to empower us and to equip us. When we begin to understand that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, that he rose from the dead, showing he has the power over death, that he can keep his promise to give us eternal life. When we begin to understand that, the first thing that we need to do is put our personal faith and trust in him. We accept what he did on the cross as payment for our sin. We accept him as our savior. And we follow the Lord in becoming a disciple. And once we become a disciple, you know what's next? We help other people become disciples. 
And the Lord has not left us to do this on our own. He has given us the Holy Spirit. So let us seek and pray, strive to understand, and to be obedient to what the Lord has called us to, so that others may find the great salvation that you and I have found. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your son who loves us beyond our understanding. God, if there's anybody that's here today, if there's anybody that's listening through our broadcast that has never accepted Jesus as their Savior, Father, I pray today that they would put their faith and their trust in him. Lord, help us not to doubt, but to believe. And having believed, to worship. For it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. As we close our service today, I want to invite you to respond to the Lord. On that day when Jesus gave the command to his disciples, he meant for them to respond in obedience. And when God speaks to us, he speaks to us so that we might respond. Do you know what the Bible says that we all have the same problem? Different particulars, but ultimately the same problem. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That, that means when you look around this room today, there's not a person in here that's perfect and without sin. Every single one of us needs forgiveness. If you're here today and you've never experienced that forgiveness, all you have to do is ask God. Because the Bible says that he offers it as a free gift. You see, before you were ever born, God knew who you would be and he knew what you would do. And the Bible tells us that Christ demonstrated the love of God. That when he died for us, we were still sinners. And yet he died for us so that we might be saved. And so I want to urge you today. You know, there's going to come a time when you're not going to hear this invitation. There's going to come a time in your life when you'll no longer be able to pray. And that might, that might be 50 years from now for you, or it could be sooner. But here's what the Bible says about that. It says today is the day of salvation. And what that means is this is not a decision that you put off to the future. When you understand and come to believe, you need to place your faith and trust in Christ. So if you've never done that, when we begin to sing, would you just pray to the Lord? Say, Pastor, I'm not, I'm not really sure what to say or how to pray. If you'll step out from your seat and just walk up to me at the front, I will help you pray. We will call on the Lord together. And you can claim this promise that God has given us. He says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That could be you today. For those of us here that are believers, God has called us to help others become believers. So I would ask you, would you just examine your heart for a moment and say, Lord, what, what do I need to do different to help other people become disciples? 
Maybe you need to serve in some place you've never been willing to serve before. Maybe you need to give up some sin that's destroying your testimony. Maybe you need to take on a whole new attitude about people. I don't know what it might be for you. But as we sing, would you just pray that prayer and say, God, show me what I need to change. Show me what I need to do different to be in obedience to you. As we sing, please respond to the Lord. Let's stand together. This world.